0: Six one seven, respond to reports of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source.
1: Now, here's your host.
0: Darren Day. Well,
1: hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in on iTunes that is dedicated to you, the death investigator, or maybe someone in a supporting role. But I'm always glad that you join us every single week to, you know, whatever topic we're going to cover, whatever we're trying to do to help train um, you, make it possible. And we just appreciate, I personally appreciate everything that you do uh, with the podcast, uh, sending in comments, sending in requests, sending in topics. All of that certainly helps a lot to keep us on track. Great show today. I'm going to talk about the coroner's creed, As some of you may not even know what the coroner's creed is, or even know that there is a coroner's creed. Talk about that. And then I'm going to talk about a checklist, a guide Every scene, every time. It's not new, been around for years and years and years. There's a little bit of modifications on it sometimes. Each agency might do things a little bit different, but there needs to be a system for every scene, every time, and why that's important. I'm going to talk about all of that as well. But before we get into that, a couple of training announcements. When you hear this, Uh, the, the, the week that it comes out live, I am at the Missouri investigators conference and so that's if you if you hear this on the first day that it comes out then you'll see me two days later at the conference hey say hey stop by tell me you tell me you heard it uh, just let me meet some more listeners i do appreciate that greatly uh something i wanted to bring up is some training that is coming to different parts of the country there's of course training all over missouri i'll be in mississippi the first week of december I'm going to be in Rockland, Maine, the first week of October. You could get on that class if you're if you're up in that area and you think it's closer for you to go to Rockland, Maine for three days than coming to Missouri. We'll be up there teaching that class. Uh, you can find any of our classes that we're teaching on cornertalk.com and click on Academy, and then you can see the training schedule there on the Academy site. All of this training is is available for you if you have in your state in your area if you would like to to host or sponsor our medical legal death investigation course our our three-day course if you would reach out to me i can help you make that happen i can come help you get some people into that training in your area and some of your investigators and can then get trained for free and i'll do everything i can to make it work out for your region Sometimes coming to your region and having people come to training is a lot better and cheaper for them rather than coming all the way to Missouri. And so I can certainly help you out with that. If you want just a one-day class or a few-hour class, another thing we can do is virtual training. I can come into your facility virtually, means I stay in our studios in Missouri. Uh, You pipe me on the screen there in your facility. As long as you have a camera and microphone capabilities, which you'll need to do anyway, Uh, You can see me. I can see you. I can communicate back and forth with the class. And it's almost just like being in the same room uh, because we can see and talk to each other. The agencies that have done it have told me when they first started or thought about it, they wasn't sure it was really going to work out very good because, you know, I'm like on the wall on the TV type thing. And are we going to be sitting and watching TV for four or five hours after it was over? They've told me they were amazed at how much interaction there was and how good the class actually came out because, again, it's not just watching TV, it's interaction. And I know that's new, that's something that uh, isn't uh, done a lot, but we're starting to do more and more of it, and I would love to bring it to your area. And the last thing I'll say in the way of announcements is if you're a writer, if you are someone that has published articles in the past on one topic or another related to death investigation or criminal investigation or something that would help our investigation community, uh, we are looking for writers for the Death Investigator magazine. Uh, it's a growing publication, and, and maybe it's just to, to get some articles that you've written out there for, for better training. Maybe it's to get some exposure to you. If you've got a course or a program or something that goes along with that, we'd be glad to, to highlight you in the magazine. And if you're a company that's listening to us and you need a place to advertise that is directed to death investigators and criminal investigators, this magazine is for you. Deathinvestigatormagazine.com. Of course, you can find the app, iOS or Android. But if you are interested in writing for us, go to deathinvestigatormagazine.com. And cornertalk.com, you can find the magazine link. Send us a submission. Uh, to write, and we, and there's a query letter there. Just tell us what you want to write, how you want to write it, things like that. Our editors will be in back in contact with you. Uh, it's a pretty simple, pain-free way to get your articles submitted. And uh, we would love to, to have you part of that because what you have, you can depart on somebody else and help train the death investigation community. All right, enough announcements. Let's move into what this topic of this podcast is going to be about. All right, I want to start off uh, this week. It's just going to be me, no guests. Uh, It's just going to be you and I along for the ride today. I want to start out talking about the coroner's creed. and Now, I I don't see this printed a lot. I don't hear a lot about it. There are some times at some conferences that it's talked about. I'm just sure, and I bet, that there's a large amount of people out there that's listening right now that do not know about the coroner's creed and actually what the coroner's creed is. Now, I don't I, I'm not taking credit for this. I'm, I'm telling you who I think it first came came about. Don't know 100 percent for sure. But here's what my research has found in the publication, Death Investigation and Examination by the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. Uh, there was a uh, it was printed in that journal in April 12th of 1988. Now, how how 100 percent accurate that is? I don't know. Uh, because I've tried to do some more research to, to determine who actually wrote it first, when did it first get adopted? But that's the best I can find is the American Academy of Forensic Sciences in 1988. So I'm going to give them credit. And then you can research it from there if you want to know more. But I'm going to read this. And, and I know reading on a podcast probably isn't uh, the, you know, the best thing to do. But I figure that's the only way I'm really going to get the information to you. So let me read to you the coroner's creed. And I think let me back up. I think this will apply to anybody in the death investigation community. It it doesn't have to be a coroner. Yes, it's directed a coroner, but also it's directed for police officers, detectives, anybody working death investigation. I believe this is something that can relate to them as well and something you need to keep in mind. Coroner's Creed, birth and death, are the only two universal human experiences birth is the most biological event in the life of any human being if it does not occur there is no being if there is no person no legal rights and duties arise for the law relates to the rights and duties of living people not inanimate objects death on the other hand is the most important legal event for all human beings When it occurs, all legal rights and duties devolving upon the person during his lifespan in a civilized jurisdiction are terminated. All persons with whom the deceased had legal relations at the moment in time are also directly affected by the occurrence of death. Moreover, both the decedent and the survivors may be greatly affected legally by how death occurred, what actually happened, why it occurred, and precisely when it occurred. Above all, who died must be absolutely determined and where death occurred is positively required as legal jurisdiction over the decedent is based upon a geographical location. The law becomes extremely active when a person dies. The office of coroner or medical examiner, along with the state licensed physician, is legally charged with what, how, and why. When only these questions have been answered correctly, can all proper legal issues arising at death be effectively handled for the proper administration of justice. Although the legal aspects of death are most important, certainly the religious and humanitarian heritages of a civilized society also command a deep concern over the death of a human being. Human death obligates the living to acquire facts on which laws to apply for each deceased member of the human race. The obligation for a proper death investigation is mandatory for legal, religious, and humanitarian satisfactions in society. Let those responsible for death investigation take heed. They labor not only for the state, but also for God. That, my friends, is a coroner's creed. It is our responsibility to Know the who, what, why, when, and where of a person's death. Maybe not every single one of those can be answered, but it's our obligation to answer them to the best of our ability. Because remember, we labor not only for the state, meaning the laws of the land, all the legal ramifications of death, but we also labor for God which means our job as coroners, medical examiners, police officers investigating death and others, we have a very important job in what we do and not only in what we do, but how we carry that job out. So with that said, I want to talk about every scene, every time. Now there are things, duties, policies, certain things that needs to be done at every scene of death that you are called in on. Whether it is just a a phone call that you declined jurisdiction or a scene that you actually go out on, there are certain questions that have to be answered. Plus, by answering these questions at every scene, every time, you stand a much better chance of not missing important information and you stand a much better chance of being consistent in your investigations. You don't want to misrule something. You don't want to forget about certain questions and certain things you have to do. If you come up with a system of every scene, every time, then you will be less likely to miss these things and do your part, your obligation to the coroner's creed. Now, the phrase every scene, every time is certainly not unique to me, and it's nothing that I made up. I believe this term is credited to Dr. Stephen Clark of the Occupational Research and Assessment Corporation. Uh, The term was first used in 1999 in the NIJ research study, setting out guidelines for us as investigators how we should work a scene. Now, that was updated last time in 2011. Uh, You can find copies of that on our website, and you're certainly welcome to get that. It's free, and and it'll go a lot more detail than what we're going to go today. But regardless of who first said it, the term is relevant today and probably needs to be explored regularly to keep us reminded of what are the steps that we need to take at every scene. Now, many agencies have checklists. I know that our agency, we have a certain form that we use Uh, It's four pages long, but we've got it printed on like 11 by 17 paper. So when you fold it in half, then you have four sides. but it's basically one paper folded in half, that gives us the ability to put any other papers we find or anything else that we need in there. But also, if we answer all of the questions on this form, then we're going to be less likely to have missed something and need to go back or not able to go back. Now, some of these are going to seem... A little bit like too simple. Like, well, of course we do that. Of course we would do that. But some not necessarily. So let's look at different sections here. So let's look at section A, referral. And however you call it, whatever you term it as, in this section, there's things that you're going to want to know, like the date and time that you've got the call. When did someone report to you that there was a death? And who was that person that reported it? Was it your dispatch? Was it the hospital? If it was the hospital, was it the emergency room? How did you get the call reported to you? What type of death is it? Now, at the time, it may be called into you as a natural, and through your investigation, you may determine that it was not a natural. So be careful listening to what someone tells you and then investigating it that direction. But nonetheless, you do want to know what they initially told you it was. Body location, where you've got a death reported to you, but now where's the body at? Is it in a home? Is it outside? Is it in a building? Is it at a hospital? Where has this death occurred? The elapsed time between notification of death and the report. So if it's two o'clock in the afternoon now, then when was when did a death occur? Now, you might not be able to find that out on the first phone call. You may be able to find out some parameters or some time frames but maybe not everything but that is an answer you're going to need to get and then we go to section b which is arrival at the scene the date and time you arrived we got the date and time that you got the initial notification of death now what's the date and time that you arrived are there other agencies present if so what's their names their ids what times did they arrive who are they when did they get there and then, who you're going to collaborate with on the investigation? Is this for the sheriff's department, the police department? Is it a state agency? Are there other people like family services or the division of aging, or who else may be there that you need to work with on this scene? And then, was emergency aid given to the deceased? If so, then who gave the emergency aid? To what extent was that aid given? And was there any medication given during the attempts to save their life? Those are all things you need to know. And a lot of that's going to be gotten if there was an ambulance on the scene. You should be able to get the EMS report from them, which will answer all of those questions. And then section C, deceased found. So what was the date and time that the deceased was found and by who or the relationship to the deceased? So What time were they found and who found them? Did the police find them based upon a check to well-being? Did an agency find them or a hospital find them? Something like that. Or was it a wife or a child or some friend or relative find them? Who found them and what was the date and time they were found? And then the date and time that they were pronounced dead. Where they were pronounced and the date and time. Now, you as a coroner. Uh, or medical exam investigator may be the one that's actually pronouncing death legally. But in most instances, someone has determined the person to be dead prior to you getting the call. So was it the the doctor? Was it uh, EMS personnel in communication with the hospital? Was it a police officer on the scene that ruled it an obvious death? Who pronounced them dead? And what date and time did that happen and what authority did they have to do that? Now, each state can have a little differences on that. Some states uh, give a very broad amount of people that can declare death. Some say it must be a coroner or a physician to declare death and be uh, an official time of death. Now, there can be an official time of death, being let's say the time that you arrived or the time the EMS pronounced, but then there was a time that they were found. And that could be, a, they were and obviously dead at the time, but that could be a Uh, an hour or so between the time a police officer arrived to a decomp case and then you arrived on the scene if the law says you as the coroner must be the one to pronounce death then that would be the legal time not when the officer got there even though we know when the officer got there the person obviously was dead section e this deals with the death scene now you need to know the location whether it be by address or gps but somehow you need to be able to know the exact location that the death occurred. And then we need to know the general description as in maybe it's in a certain town. Maybe you got an address, but maybe that's the address is this town of, of anywhere USA or village or something like that. The weather conditions at the scene at the time of death, if you know at the time of death, but if not, then certainly the time you got there detailed description of the site where the body was found. So is the body found at 123 Main Street, any town USA, and is it found in the living room, in the kitchen, the bathroom? Is it found in the backyard? Okay, where exactly was the, was the body found? And what was the body found on? Lying on carpet, concrete, wood, whatever. All Everything about this body's location. And then, of course, you're going to have to document the scene. Notes, sketches, pictures, things like that we need to know everything about this scene so that 50 years later somebody can read your report and be able to recreate it so if every single time you go to a scene if you have a system of handwritten notes or sketches photographs whatever it is and you do it the same way every time and i know there are times that we may have to modify a little bit because of things going on but if you have a checklist and you have a way of doing it, it becomes a habit. You do it every single time. You won't miss anything. The next section is deceased description. So we want to know the basic description of the individual, their age, their, their sex, gender, race, their ancestry, uh, clothing, the conditions, placement, and defects. So if, what type of clothing do they have on? Are they fully dressed? Do they just have on a T-shirt and underwear? Are they nude except for socks? How is this person dressed? What's the condition of their clothing? What's the placement of their clothing? Uh, is, the, is the clothing ripped up? Is it appropriate for the time? Are they wearing winter parkas in July? What what about their clothing fits the scene or what don't? Document any jewelry or other valuables on the body. Again, there's ways to do that. We don't want to talk about gold rings and diamonds. We want to talk about yellow metal and, and clear stones, whatever. We want to be very generic, okay? Any other valuables on the body, there might be money, there might be watches, jewelry, necklaces, uh, there might be cell phones or something like that. Those are valuables that's on the body. Estimated time of death, the date and the time the body temperature is at the scene. You need at least two recordings an hour apart, and that's, you can, if you do internal body temperatures, That's fantastic. Some agencies don't. Some only do surface temperature. So they do the ambient temperature of the room, the surface temperature of the body. Uh, Some of that is good to know. Some of it isn't necessarily useful, but it's what your agency does. The degree of rigor mortis and lividity and the date and time that was evaluated. So you were there. You've been there for a while. You start your body exam. What is the date and time that you actually done the exam of the body and determine the amount of rigamortis, the location of mortis, Is lividity present? Is lividity fixed or non-fixed? Will it blanch? All of that needs to be documented. And then when they were last seen alive. That's very important. We know when they were found. We know when you got notified. We know when you were there. But when was the last time this person was known to be alive? It might be minutes ago. It might be days or years ago. But when was the last time they were known alive? Decomposition state. Uh, Any any entomology specimens collected? Is there is there bugs present? Is there is there maggots present? Uh, What's the uh, stage of decomposition? Is it fresh? Are they starting to model? Uh, Is it something where they are full decomposed, where nothing but skeleton? What is our level of decomposition? And then is there any injuries? especially defensive wounds on the arms and the hands. And be careful with this. Uh, It's really not your job at the scene necessarily to say if they're defensive wounds, but it's certainly something we can look at and say, yeah, that appears to be defensive wounds. It could be defensive wounds uh, based upon the scene that you may lead you more to believe that, but, but, and you can investigate that direction. But what do we see as far as those defects or injuries on the body? And then when they were last seen alive, we need to determine their activity. What were they doing when they were last seen alive? They were in bed snoring or they had left to go to the store. Uh, What's their mental state? What's their physical state? You know, was it an Alzheimer's patient that that walked off from somewhere? Has the person been depressed? Were they angry? Uh, what, What was the person like mentally and physically whenever they were last seen alive? What kind of clothing did they have on when they were last seen alive? That's important because if... The last time they seen them, they were dressed in blue jeans, a pink shirt and a parka. But now we're finding them in a pair of, let's say, basketball shorts and a white T-shirt. What caused them to change clothes? And was there any activity that took place from the last time someone seen them to how they're found now? Now, the person that last seen them might not have known their activity, but maybe because of the way they were dressed. Wait a minute. We've got a change of clothes, which means something caused that change. So it could have been they went to play basketball or it could have been another reason. But why were they last seen in and what do they have now? And then is there any physical evidence present? This is the next section, physical evidence. Now this may be determined or documented by the law enforcement agency. Some agencies the coroners and the medical examiners will collect and retain evidence. In a lot of agencies, the police is involved in the scene and they will collect and retain evidence. Either way, the coroner needs to know what evidence is, what personal property is, what needs to stay with the body, and what needs to be collected and documented, whether, it, whether the law enforcement collects it or you collect it. There's times when you as a coroner know something needs to be collected, but the law enforcement officer on the scene might not. So you can direct it to be collected and saved. And then coordination with the death investigation team members. Now, team members include like laboratory officials, your state crime lab, law enforcement agencies that are on the scene working to death. You may have special consultants that come in uh, like geologists or entomologists or anthropologists or all kinds of ologists might come in and help you with the scene. That takes special coordination. Next section is identification. What method of identification was used? You need to document this. Was it visual, meaning the driver's license was easy enough to use? Uh, You have multiple people there or at least a a valid person there to say, yes, that's my husband, Tom. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and, And is there a driver's license that can verify that? Sometimes driver's licenses can't verify it because there's such a change in what the person looked like then as to what they look like now. So that may not be possible. Plus, decomposition or injury may cause that not to be possible. So if visual... Cannot be used. What method did you use? It's either visual or scientific. If it's scientific, then was it fingerprints? Was it DNA? Uh, Did it a combination of tattoos and fingerprints? What caused you to make a valid determination of identity? Uh, Who made that verification if it was visual? Who made it? When and where did they make it? Was it at the scene? Did you have them come back to the morgue? How did they uh, make that identification? And then you need to know if you have a second or a backup identification method. Now, in cases of accidents, sometimes it's hard to make a visual idea of somebody. But sometimes even if someone looks close like someone else, they resemble them in a time of stress and trauma, then a wife might identify her husband, let's say at the morgue, incorrectly because it does look like him, but she's upset and she, you know he may have had a little bit of a trauma and she may identify him incorrectly. So what? what's your secondary? Was there more than one person identify him? Uh, did you also, not only did you get the wife to identify him, but go ahead and take his fingerprints and send them off as well? What else have you done to make a secondary identification? Now, that may not be as important in some cases if you have somebody that is At home, on hospice, in bed, surrounded by family, multiple people know that that is our dad and our dad died. You probably don't need a second form of identification. Maybe that is a second form. You have multiple identifications. But even if it's just husband and wife, if the husband is in bed, asleep, wife wakes up, finds him unresponsive, you may not have to go through a scientific method. But if someone has been found somewhere else in a car accident or in some way, you might have to consider a secondary. So the question is, is it needed? And if so, did you do it? That needs to be on on your form. That way it will remind you, do I need it or not? And then the next section is transportation of the body to the morgue or wherever it's going to go. Did you release that body at the scene to the funeral home? If so, that's fine. Document that. Does your agency use a livery service or some type of transport service to come pick up bodies or does your agency transport your own bodies back to a morgue or a facility regardless of how you do it if if you haven't released a funeral home and you're done if if that's the case you're done but if you're still got investigation to do you need to make sure that your checklist provides a way for you to protect and preserve trace evidence on the body have you protected that? Have you protected those areas? There's all, that's a big area to get into to talk about, but just make sure that you've thought about that. Is trace evidence protected on this body? Make sure you assess the area beneath the body, not only for evidence, but for, for any other things that could be interesting or informative on or around underneath the body. Of course, safeguard the family against further drama during movement. How do you do this? I like a lot of times get them out of the house, get them out of the area. I don't really like to be watched moving bodies around. If there's a lot of, of blood or things in an area, you might want to recommend to the family to use a cleanup crew, something like that. Uh, if there's things that I can pick up and, and not leave, I try to do that some. Uh, but try to minimize the trauma. Again, this is, if you do this every time, you won't forget these things. Okay, then the last section is going to be the actions that you take at the morgue or at the ME's office. OK, so you want to continue your identification confirmation. Check that. Are you are you good, confident and finalize that that this is Tom Brown? If you know this is Tom Brown, 59 years old, you're good. You can good. You check that off. Notify next of kin according to your procedures and your protocols. If next of kin has not already been notified, make sure that you notify them. You know who you notified and the date and time of that notification. Now, some states have very specific rules of who the next of kin is. Some states uh, say you just have to notify a next of kin, and if you cannot find a next of kin, then you can notify someone called a next friend or somebody like a neighbor or something like that if you can't find any next of kin. Now, obviously, we need to do our part to try, and that means you need to document what you've done. And if... There's all kinds of ways to search for to try to find somebody's next of kin. That's another whole show. But make sure you document what you've done, because if you come up short and can't find a next of kin and you have to end up taking possession of this body for county burial, things like that, you need to be able to document and prove that you tried and what were the methods that you used. And then, of course, you might want to arrange for an autopsy. If you're not going to do an autopsy, are you just going to do toxicology? Is this going to be an external post only where we just examine the body on the outside and then just take blood or vitreous for toxicology? What's going to be your level of examination? And then before you're done with this investigation, you need to make sure that you consult with the other people in the team. And what I mean by team is, the police officers, the EMS, anybody else that was working that scene with you, Division of Family Services, Division of Aging, the state highway patrol, the state police, well, who else was involved in the scene, if anybody, make sure everybody is on the same page and there isn't anything left hanging out there that needs to be investigated or answered. Uh, one, one caveat here. Personally, this is me. This is, this is my rant. I believe that a suicide should not be ruled suicide unless all parties in the investigation agree because all of their written reports must agree that the evidence points to and concludes suicide and your summary report should conclude that if at a later time more evidence is found to change your mind then you can reopen the investigation and change that but if you do Can't agree if, let's say, the coroner, who has the final rule, he can say it's suicide, she can say it's, it's suicide, and it's done. That's the way it is. No one can tell him what to do. However, if the police department is really, really convinced it's not, my opinion is you probably want to rule that an undetermined. The reason being is because if you've been in this business more than a minute, you'll realize that nobody likes to accept suicide as a ruling. And so if you as a coroner have the facts and figures and believe that it's suicide, fine. But if you've got a police department that's holding out on you, they're going to be your worst enemy. When the family's saying, I don't think it's suicide, the police might be saying, well, I don't think it is either, but that coroner said it was. So when it comes to ruling death like that, you need to, before everything gets sewed up, Make sure you believe that everybody's on the same page. If not, undetermined is a real manner. And if you feel it needs to be left undetermined, that's perfectly fine. So once you've got all consensus with all the team, of course, some cases don't need a big formal consensus. It's just a hospice case. You know, it's just to this or just to that. But some will need some consistence. And, of course, the final thing is preparing the necessary reports, whatever those are, reviewing medical records, reviewing toxicology reports, making your final summary, getting everything put in the in your system correctly, whether it be computer software or whether it be paper, whatever it is, making sure all that is done and done consistently every single time the same way, because if because with every scene, every time, it means every one of these check marks or, or check boxes are checked doesn't mean we necessarily did it it means that we re, we looked at it and said this needs done or not we moved on we don't need to do this we don't need to do an autopsy but the question is does as a is autopsy needed yes or no move on if it's no then move on if it's yes then do what you need to do to verify there's an autopsy and make sure that happens this is the way you don't miss anything and that's the whole point of every scene every time now If you would like to have an example of a scene worksheet, you can go to the resources section at coronertalk.com to click on resources at the top, and you'll be able to see scene worksheet. Again, you can print that out. It's in a Word document form. So you can change the top. You can put your own agency's name up there, things like that. But you can then see how... Uh, you can see this system i just talked about but it's in this form in fact on the very last page of this is a place for a little bit of summary notes Um, there is the body diagram you know the front and back of the outline of the body where if you wanted to make some notes of marks and defects you could do that Uh, there's a lot in this four pages and if you will take those four pages and copy them off on an 11 by 17 page. That's a big piece of paper. But then when you fold that 11 by 17 over, as I said in, when I started this conversation, you now, you're now you still only dealing with one piece of paper. But when you fold it over, now you have four sides of it in, a, in the order that you need to go in, and it makes a nice little folder as well to put stuff in. And it works extremely well. And you may look at this and say, well, our agency needs this or needs that. You know, this form that I'm talking about even has a place at the bottom of who transported, when it was transported. And there's even a number for the lock tag. And if you use these metal or plastic lock tags to lock a body bag prior to transport, there's a number on there and you need to record that number. So to make sure that you remember and not forget to record that number, it's on the form as you go down through the the list. When it comes to transport, you write that number down there. That, That number should correspond when it gets back to the morgue that it hasn't been tampered with. This is perfectly free. There's no charge for this. It's just what we use. We had it made up at our agency, and I've shared it across the country, and I'm sure you may have something of your own. It might be better. And if you have something like a death scene checklist that you look at ours and, and think you have something better, absolutely, please share it with me. Share me a copy of it. If you don't want me to share it worldwide, I won't. I would just like to see it for myself. If you send me something and say, hey, look, you know this is what we use. Let everybody else look at it too. I will make it open for everybody. But we all need to share this type of information because again, every scene, every time means we don't miss anything. It makes us more professional and it makes our investigations more thorough so we don't get back later on and realize we should have done something and we missed it. That is where the problems can occur. All right, and that is my rant for this week. The Coroner's Creed, and if you're going to follow the Coroner's Creed, then you really need to get a system of every scene, every time. Very, very important that you do so. Remember, we exist to provide you training. If you need training in a certain area, brought to your area, or on a certain topic, please reach out and let us know. Here in Missouri, we're doing training on surface and buried body fire investigation deaths we we have scattered remains clandestine grave uh, officers response to death scenes the full medical legal all of that here in missouri and of course 90 percent of the same thing is online and a lot of these trainings that we have you can get online and take the full 40-hour medical legal death investigator course online and then set for the national uh, exam that we offer and you can be a certified medical legal death investigator all of that is online we're here to serve you, and if there's a training or a topic that you want us to cover, I do have some of those people have sent in that's in queue that hasn't been covered on the podcast yet. It's not that I'm not going to get to them. It's that I haven't got to them yet, so please send me whatever you would like for us to cover, and if you want a training brought to your area, again, don't hesitate to let me know. We do still have some opening dates throughout the next uh, throughout the rest of 2019, and we'll be glad to get you scheduled in for 2020. So until next week, everybody, again, find a way to be a blessing. You should be blessing someone all the time, every single day, especially in our job. Our job is a very important job, and we should use it to bless lives. Above all, I want you back next week. I want to participate in whatever activity you're participating in right now. I love being in your earbuds as you do it, and I want you back next week. So above all, be safe.
0: Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coronertraining. 3617, 1024, seen en route to Morgue.